A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this uh, episode has been generously sponsored by a fan and listener of Jewish History Soundbites, and he's dedicating this episode about the Crown Heights neighborhood to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who referred to Crown Heights as Kan Siva Hashem Sabracha, and who miraculously saved this Jewish neighborhood. So, we're going to speak a little bit about Crown Heights, a legendary neighborhood, which is not just history, it's very much in the present as well, but we'll touch more on the history than on the contemporary. In fact, um, my grandfather was born in Crown Heights in 1919, this is way before anything pretty much, and I remember growing up he used to tell us with pride that we were there before the Rebbe came. Um, meaning the Friedeker Rebbe, the Rayats, and uh, many years before. And the idea was that he was trying to bring out that it was a vibrant uh, Jewish neighborhood um, even before it achieved its fame as the headquarters of Chabad Lubavitch. Now, you know, the, the New York City Jewish neighborhoods are expanding at the turn of the century. Uh, famously at the, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, they crossed the bridge into Brooklyn to Williamsburg when Williamsburg is overflowing. So one of the early neighborhoods past Williamsburg is Crown Heights, one of the many. It, just to give a, a drop of context, general context, um, of the millions of Jews, over two million Jews who immigrate to the United States during the period of the Great Immigration, uh, immigration, um, from 1881 till 1925 approximately. So 50% of them, half, settle in New York City. So that's an enormous influx of Jews into one place. The rest of the other 50% are all over the United States, mainly in urban centers. Um, at its peak, New York City had close to 2 million Jews, and we're talking about then when New York City's total population was smaller. So it was almost a third of the city. Almost one out of three people in New York City was Jewish. So you're talking about an insane Jewish presence in New York City during the time. And therefore, there's, you know, Crown Heights is just one of a phenomenon of many, many Brooklyn neighborhoods and the Bronx and to a certain extent Manhattan itself. 
that were predominantly, um, there were these, you know, neighborhoods that were predominantly Jewish and mainly of immigrants or second generation. Uh, to, there was, it was a working class neighborhood, mostly secular at the time. Uh, a lot of conservative um, Jews were there. Um, there was a lot of affluent Jews, uh, Jews who left Manhattan to go move out of town when Crown Heights was out of town. It was a farming area. There's actually pig farms there. They, some people even nicknamed it pig, pig Town for a while in a very not complimentary way. But it was a very affluent area. They built some beautiful homes. The first JCC in America um, was built in 1919, the Brooklyn Jewish Center um, in Crown Heights. It was built by affluent conservative Jews from Manhattan who moved to um, Crown Heights, which was de being developed in Brooklyn. It was it used to be farmland. There had been a hospital that was built there in the first decade of the 20th century. So there was a lot of potential. The, because it was considered an upscale neighborhood, someone there was able to convince the city to uh, have the um, to have the subway underground, not in over over the street subways. So that added to the aesthetics of the neighborhood. And this first JCC in America, a historic moment, they built um, the Brooklyn Jewish Center, which was also a major major synagogue, a major conservative synagogue. Yassela Rosenblatt did concerts there at the Brooklyn Jewish Center. It had it was like a mega synagogue. They had a, a vision of what a shul was supposed to be, uh, uh, with a pool and a spa and a major hall and gym and a Hebrew school. And um, one of the rabbis there actually was Rabbi Israel Leventhal, the son of the great and famous Rabbi Bernard Leventhal of Philadelphia. So he was the rabbi there. And despite the fact, again, the conservative movement, uh, um, conservative Judaism was not what it became later in the interwar, in the, during the interwar period. It was still very traditional. And this was like an in-between conservative and somewhat traditional synagogue. They would actually host, um, Rabbi Leventhal hosted regular appeals for European yeshivas during the interwar period. He hosted a banquet in the in the um, hall, in the ballroom of the shul, in Rav Cook's honor when he visited the United States in 1924. And um, the, in fact, even members, in, even in later years, or children of members who had moved out during the white flight, which we'll get to, and moved out to Long Island and New Jersey. So many of them uh, retained membership at the Brooklyn Jewish Center, would come back sometimes on Sundays for prayers and breakfast. And even after the Lubavitch Ahle Torah um, rented space and then bought the building um, and took it over completely um, at first as elementary school and also yeshiva. Um, and uh, but even then they maintained uh, this relationship with the remnants. And up in, even into the ninety the nineteen nineties, there were a few elderly members who would come once a week to be a part of this old uh, this old landmark shul, which was now which is now completely a, a Lubavitcher. Yeshiva. Now, um, another early resident of, of surprising early resident of Crown Heights was Rav Shimon Shkup when he lived in uh, in America for that year and a half when he was a Yeshiva in Rabbi Yisroel So he lived in in Crown Heights. There was even a Jewish, like I said, it was also working class neighborhoods. There was also Jewish socialists or even communists. They had the building called the Far Bend Building, which today is a Lubavitcher Kail. There was also a bowling alley there at some point. But the Jewish socialists, communists, Yiddishists, whatever they were, 
they also had a presence. Now, in the 1930s, a fellow by the name of Max Jacobs founds the first young Israel of Crown Heights and the first mikvah. Um, he sends his son Harold Jacobs to, to Tarvadas in Williamsburg for elementary school. He later on, this Harold Jacobs settles down in Crown Heights and he becomes a very wealthy businessman and a major community activist, probably one of the greatest Jewish activists ever in Brooklyn. Um, he was nicknamed the mayor of Crown Heights. He he was involved in literally everything. He was affiliated or even in charge of a whole long list of institutions. He was involved in the Crown Heights Yeshiva, which Rabbi Joseph Baumel, an old Galizier, Galiziana rabbinic family, um, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of one of the first yeshivas in Crown Heights, maybe even the first yeshiva in Crown Heights. So Harold Jacobs was involved with that. Later on, the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, he was involved with Chaim Berlin, Tarvadas, the young Israel of Crown Heights that his father had found that he was involved with the Lubavitcher Yeshiva, the Bub of Yeshiva. He even uh, was in charge, was the head of the nominal head of a Shemer Shabbos Boy Scout troop, which is a rather rare phenomenon in the American landscape. He um, he was part of the Brooklyn Jewish Community Council. He later campaigned to fight the Blue Laws in New York City, and then later New York State. And one of the first organized um, political lobbying operations of Orthodox Jewry. Um, one of the early, you know, movements of organization to do serious political lobbying. He got the blue laws that, you know, in other words, to allow uh, Jews to have their stores open on Sunday um, and to be able to make business. He was involved in, with um, its deterioration of, of certain Brooklyn Jewish neighborhoods and and African-American and Jewish relations. He helped relocating efforts to other neighborhoods as the neighborhood of Crown Heights deteriorated. He himself left in the 1960s when everyone else did, but at that time he was also involved in OU. And he was rose up the ranks in OU until he was basically, um, I don't remember the exact title, executive director, vice president, president. He was basically the number one person eventually in the OU. Um, first he fundraised for it to make it financially stable, and then he was a Kirov pioneer, again, very often behind the scenes, a very modest person, pioneering a lot of the NCSY early programs. Um, he, was he was also in the leadership of Young Israel. He was someone who was literally a, a tremendous activist, and he was for many years in Crown Heights. Now, I mentioned the Young Israel of Crown Heights. Shlomo, Shlomo Kalbach's father was later a Rav in Manhattan, in the West Side, but his earlier position was the Young Israel of Crown Heights, and in fact, that's where Shlomo Kalbach's initial exposure to Lubavitch and to Bubov was local, because he actually lived in Crown Heights for a while. Irving Bunim, the great activist, lived in Crown Heights for a time uh, as well. And if we move on to, um, before we get back to Chabad, we'll talk about the ones who used to be there, the Bubov Rebbe, when he came from uh, as a refugee after he survived the war, he um, he was in Crown Heights for many years, till the late 60s, till everyone left. He built his maestas there, his base medrash, yeshiva, and he was very well established in uh, in uh, Crown Heights for um, about two decades, for quite a bit of time. The yeshiva of Eastern Parkway was a famous yeshiva, was loosely affiliated with Chaim Berlin um, for a time. Ramatul Weinberg, who was later famous as Yeshiva Montreal, was a rebbe in Eastern Parkway. And Yibadul Chaim, still alive at 101 Beliay and Har, Reb Grainim Lazenvik, was a Rebbe in 
who grew up in Pinsk, uh, was a Rebbe also in Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway. There's a very diverse student body there, um, and it had a, a nice uh, Yeshiva reputation. I spoke to some alumni of uh, Yeshiva Eastern Parkway. They could only have positive memories of that uh, Yeshiva, which eventually closed down. They moved around a bunch of times. Another interesting shtibel that was in the Crown Heights was the Sosnovitzer shtibel, which was really a Radzin or Ishbitz uh, Hasidish shtibel. The the um, one who eventually became the Radziner Rebbe was a fellow by the name of Rav Yisachar Englard. Now the Radziners were were liners from the Ishbitzer, from Matri Yosef Liner of Ishbitz, a dynasty, major Polish dynasty. And the last Radzina Rebbe, Reb Shmuel Shloyma Liner, was killed by the Nazis. But his brother-in-law was married to his sister, was this Reb Rami Socher Englard, who was the Rav in Sosnovich, which is a major Polish city, before the war. And, and Reb Rami Socher Englard survived by fighting with the partisans during the Holocaust in Poland. And incredibly enough, at the end of the war, he goes back to Sosnovich, and in the in a in a story that's really never told of the attempt to rebuild uh, Jewish communities in Poland after the war until the communists made it impossible. But there were survivor communities, especially in the bigger cities like Warsaw and Lodz and other places, in a place like Sosnovich also. And he was the Rav. He was the Rav of a, the Kehila, of a Jewish, the re- newly rebuilt, uh, much smaller, unfortunately, Jewish community of Sosnovich in the late 1940s and eventually um, several years after the war, it became impossible to continue Jewish life under the communists, and um, he moved to America, and he comes settles in Crown Heights, and he had a Sosnovich Shtibel, and he lived there, except besides for a short stint in Eretz Yisrael, he lived there until 1971, at the peak of the White Flight, and then he moves to Eretz Yisrael, he lived a very long life, he died in his late 90s, just a few years ago, about 15, 20 years ago, I don't remember the exact uh, date, and so he was, um, so you had Radzin Sosnovich in, in Crown Heights also. The Skelena Rebbe, Eliezer Zush of Portugal, lived in Crown Heights for many years. He was a chassid of the Stefanester, a Romanian chassidus from the Rizian dynasty. And he survives the Holocaust and stays in Romania, uh, also under the communists. He's operating there until he's arrested in 1959 in a whole international attempt to get the Rebbe out, along with his son, who was the second Skolena Rebbe, who just passed away recently. And they come to America, and they settle down in Crown Heights. He was actually very close with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They had a lot of high esteem for each other. And when the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I'm going to get to in a couple of minutes, about his attempts at, and successful attempts at saving the neighborhood, so he prevailed, the Rebbe prevailed on the Skolena Rebbe, the old Skolena Rebbe, to stay in Crown Heights, despite the fact that everyone was leaving in the late 60s. And the Skolena stayed in deference to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he stayed till almost, I think, around 1980. He stayed for about 20 years. He was, lived there for about 20 years and stayed um, well past the, uh, the general uh, flight, white flight from the neighborhood. He died a couple of years later, and his son already had established his court in Borough Park. Another, um, another uh, institution, another Mysid, that was in Crown Heights, was Rav was Yitzhak Kutner's Kailal, Kailal Gur Arye. Uh, he started in 1956. He opens his Kailal in Crown Heights. And then and, uh, he actually knew the Lubavitcher Rebbe from Berlin. They knew each other from their university days in Berlin, the time that they spent together. 
And but it, but still, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner was also a Slabatker. He was a diverse. He had a lot of sides to him, a lot of facets to his fascinating and deep personality. So he wanted his kailal to be an elite, um, you know, litfish learning only kailal. And despite the fact that he himself, Rabbi Hutner himself, had gone to the Friedeker Rebbe, the Rayatzes, Rabbi Yitzchak Schneerson, his Fabrengans occasionally in the 1940s, but he discouraged the the Kail guys in his Kail Gloraria to go attend the Fabrengans of the Rebbe because he wanted them to be exclusively uh, part of his Kail and his Talmidim, and uh, he felt that they didn't need any of that other inspiration. So that there was a... But the Rebbe was not insulted from it. They they, they got along, and, um, and uh, you know, each, each had their own way. But at the point I'm trying to bring out is that it was a very diverse neighborhood in the 1950s and 60s still. There was a shul called the Empire Stiebel, because it was on Empire Street or Avenue, whatever it is. And the rabbi there in the early years was Shmuel David Valkin, who was a grandson of the, the great Radner Rosh Hashiva, Rameshul Andinsky. And he was a son of Reb Aaron Valkin, who was involved with the Volozhin Yeshiva. He was a Robin Pinsk. He was killed by the Nazis. And he escaped. Uh, Shmuel David Valkin escaped, and he ended up in Shanghai. And in fact, with the Mir Yeshiva, and towards the end of his time in Shanghai, his son uh, Chaim was born, or Chaim Valkin, who I've met many times, is, lives in Yerushalayim. He's the big Mir Talmud, actually, and he's a mashgiach in the Ateres uh, Yisrael Yeshiva in Bayit Vagan. So, um, so this Rishmuel David Valkin, his father, was the Rav in Lukach, and he later was the Rav in the Empire Shtibel, um in, in Crown Heights. Later on in the 1970s, there was a Rav there, Chesidish Rav, Rablipa Shapiro, who was also a refugee from Europe, and he was the, the Rav there uh, for many years as well. There was endless Shtiblach. Pretty much every Hasidus had a Shtibel in Crown Heights for during the 1950s. Spinka, Novominsk, the Novominsk Rebbe's father, Rabbi Nachum Mordechai Perlau, um, was in Crown Heights, the Vialopol Rebbe. Um, Vialopol Hasidus was a Galiziana Hasidus, the original. So this, this Rabbi Shleim Zalman Frankel, um, who was a scion of the of the um, Vialopolar, he was actually a namesake of the original Vialopolar Rebbe, was a Talmud of, of uh, the mayor of Apta, the Arla Shemayim, and the Rapshitzer. He's actually buried in Krakow. When we go with the groups to Krakow, we stop by the Vialopolar Rebbe's kever usually, so his namesake uh, made it to the United States before the war, and he uh, continues this Galiziana Hasidus in a shtibel, in uh, in in Crown Heights, Skelen I mentioned. Ger had two shtibels, not one, in Crown Heights. And Ger always has to have more than anyone else. Bells had a shtibel. Majitz, there was even a Kerestir shtibel. Believe it or not, Kerestir existed back then also. Um, Satmer had a shtibel there. Sadiger, Skver, Vizhnitz, There was an Aguda shul. Um, there was over fifty shuls in Crown Heights. There were several modern Orthodox shuls. I mentioned the Young Israel. Chovavei Torah, which was always known as the Murphy Shul, now it's a Lubavitcher Yeshiva. Um, the Rav of the Aguda Shul was a Galicianer Yid named Rav Chaim Tzvi Krieger, who was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was a Rav in, in uh, Belgium pre- prior to his arrival in the United States. He was a big expert in Gittin and other halachas. Remember the Aguda Sarabonim? I'm almost sure, I double-check it, but I'm almost sure that the famous Krieger's Shul in Matzdorf, which is famous for its singing and acoustics, I think it's the same family, possibly even named after him, the Matzdorfer 
um, Ehrenfeld, who built the neighborhood of Matazdor, was actually Rav Chaim Sukiger's son-in-law. And um, another Rav there was a Litvisher Rav in Crown Heights, or Meisha Binyamin Tomashov, who learned in Slutsk, in Slabotka. He was a son-in-law of the founder of the Tel Yeshiva and Rav in Kelm, Rav Tzviak of Oppenheim. He was a Rav also in Crown Heights for a period of time. There were two Beis Yaakovs from the earliest Beis Yaakovs in America there. There were several yeshivas. I mentioned the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, the Crown Heights Yeshiva of Joseph Baumel, the Babav Yeshiva, the Lubavitch Yeshiva, of course, Rebelli Chazan, who was in also in Altamir and the Rashiva in Taravadas, he had a shul in in uh, in Crown Heights, a resident of Crown Heights for a bunch of years, was Gedalia Shore, also Rashiva in in uh, in Taravadas. In fact, my uh, wife's grandfather who also was in the Mir in Shanghai. He once met Rebelli Chazan during the week, and he saw that I'm sorry, he met him on Shabbos, excuse me, and he saw that he wasn't wearing his frock, and he said, Elia. You're a Rosh Hashiva in Tarvadas. frak? Where's your frak? So he said, do you ever see a plumber wearing overalls on Shabbos? No, it's because he doesn't wear his work clothes on Shabbos. So I'm a Rosh Hashiva during the week. Now here I have my shul in Crown Heights. There's no reason for me to wear my work clothing. The Bustin Rebbe, who is Ramesha Horovitz, the older son of the first Bustin Rebbe, Pinchas David Horovitz, he when he left his father's place in Williamsburg and before he moved to his ultimate where he settled and set up his court in Borough Park, in between there was a stint that he was also in in Crown Heights. It was a vibrant uh, neighborhood, of course. There was every amenity. Then Kingston Avenue was the Avenue J or the 13th Avenue of, of uh, it still is, of, uh, of Crown Heights. In those days there was meal marts and the Mazone and restaurants, farm stores, bakeries, everything. It was the, the center of, of, of Jewish life. And what happens to it? It happens to it is that, like many other Brooklyn neighborhoods, there's a change in the demographic. Um, people start selling, crime rises, there's this tremendous flight from the neighborhood. And here, the Rebbe steps in, the Lubavitch Rebbe steps in, and he decides he's going to save the neighborhood. In fact, he said, I was expecting the Askanim, who's there, it's their job, the communal activists, to do it. And they didn't, so I have to do it myself. And he takes this on as his own responsibility, and he really gets involved in it. He gives a schmooze. He explains that it's the halacha, that you have to save the neighborhood, save the shuls, um, not sell your homes. And uh, he publishes it eventually as an article in Hapardes, and Ramesha Feinstein wrote that he agreed with him. And one of the Hasidim, Shmuel Shraji, I want to pronounce that last name, he founds a patrol called the Maccabees, which protects the neighborhood. And and, and the Lubavitcher takes this on his, as his mission for the next couple of years, starting in 1969-70, until 71-72, really through the whole decade almost, he keeps on giving schmoozing about it by forbringing, strengthening the neighborhood, make your simchas locally in the neighborhood. And he made a famous proclamation. He says, Kisham Tziva Hashem HaSabracha, God made the blessing in this neighborhood. This is where we are. He would send his Hasidim to Davin in emptying shuls so that we shouldn't lose the shul, it shouldn't be sold, it shouldn't be knocked down, it shouldn't be sold to a church. And he literally, he's, and when he couldn't get a minion of Hasidim to go Davin in the shul, they wanted a Davin in 770. He said, you know what? I'll go Davin in the shul to save the shul. If you're not going to go to make the minion, I'll go to make the minion. He continues this campaign throughout the 70s. If we look in retrospect, 
He he literally saved the neighborhood basically single handedly, and there's it's a lot to say about it, and I really I could elaborate on it for a lot more time if we're not just short on time. But it's an amazing story, and through through that it be you know through his saving the neighborhood, it, it becomes the headquarters of the whole Lubavitch movement in Crown Heights, and and interestingly enough. What we can say is that through these this headquarters in Crown Heights of a neighborhood that he saved, he was able to go ahead and save and build Jewish neighborhoods throughout the world because it's from there that he sent out the shlichim and from there that he built Chabad houses. And to think about how many pl- other places around the world that were saved because Crown Heights, and it's very appropriate that way, the Crown Heights becomes the center of the whole empire of uh, Chabad. So if we go back to the beginning of when uh, Chabad... Um, uh, uh, arrives in the in the um, in the neighborhood. So the Rebbe, the Rayat, the Friedrich Rebbe, arrives in 1940 in America uh, and eventually settles in Crown Heights. In 1941, 770 Eastern Parkway is purchased for him. Um, it was pre- pre- previously they didn't build the building. So it's ironic that the most iconic building uh, in Shul, maybe in the world, I don't know. Uh, one of the one, one of the top five for sure. It wasn't built by the Hasidus. It wasn't their architecture. It wasn't their design. It was a pediatric clinic that was doing illegal abortions, and it was illegal in those days. But the pre Roe versus Wade uh, era, and it was seized and sold for an undermarket price, which is how Lubavitch was able to buy it for as a good deal. And it's also an idea in, in Hasidus of taking the darkness and destruction something place that destroyed life and bringing light to it and using it as a catapult to greatness, to the light of Hasidus. But it's an iconic structure and it becomes the symbol of uh, the neighborhood of, of the Hasidus. Um, in fact, my wife's great uncle was uh, Label Bistritsky, who was a legend in Crown Heights and in Chabad, and he found the Hatzala in Crown Heights uh, during that time. And um, and they even after saving the neighborhood, they had their fair share of of challenges. You had the Crown Heights riots in August of 1991. The Rebbe's motorcade, uh, someone hits the seven-year-old uh, uh, Gavin Cato and um, and instigates a riot, a three-day riot. And it's obviously not just about the death of unfortunate death of this child. There's a lot of racial tensions, crime, and you know, and of course David Dinkins as the mayor. Um, in the pre-Giuliani days, uh, you know, in New York City, that was a whole thing to talk about itself and the history of New York City and crime during that time. But uh, unfortunately, Uncle Rosenbaum, the Chassid from Australia, was killed, and and they overcome that as well, and uh, it continues and um, and flourishes. So, despite the fact that most of the other uh, institutions and Hasidus and and great people that graced the streets of the neighborhood over the years. Uh, eventually left, but um, most, uh, but ma- much of it, uh, but, but they were able to continue in in other places, and of course, Lubavitch was able to stay. Interestingly enough, the the when the Lubavitch Rebbe was involved in his efforts to save the neighborhood, so I mentioned Milmart, but there was another, uh, I think even earlier, um, you know, Heimish food takeout type of store caterer kosher food, Shabbos food type of store. The original one was called Mermelstein's. And this Mr. Mermelstein was a chassid who was planning on leaving the neighborhood with the white flight, which he did. He moved to the Flatbush or Borough Park. Before he left, the Rebbe, who was not his Rebbe, he comes over to him and he says, don't leave. 
Um, even if you have to leave, but don't close your store. I'm begging you to keep your store open. We can't have a, you know, a real Haimish, a Jewish neighborhood if there's no kosher takeout. And I promise you, you won't go out of business. I will send my Hasidim to buy by your store, to patronize it. You'll stay in business. You'll do well. You'll have the monopoly on kosher food stores because everyone else is closing down. And he does. He keeps it open, even though he moved out of the neighborhood. But he would commute every day. And he kept the store open until he retired. And he sold it to one of his workers. But I believe it's still around and still called Mermelstein's, or at least it was until uh, recently. And um, and that was the, the Rebbe's efforts to save the neighborhood went so far into detail as to even get the kosher uh, takeout food to, to stay and, and literally beg him to go down into the, into the trenches to, to uh, get the neighborhood. I want to uh, end off by giving a thank you to those who helped me provide you know, research and background and information and stories. The sponsor himself, who grew up in Crown Heights, was able to share some information and stories. And a special, special thank you to someone whose knowledge is literally limitless, a big listener, of uh, Jewish history soundbites, uh, Nachum Shmar Yahu Zayans, who graciously shares some of his literally endless knowledge with me for to, to contribute to this episode. Oh, and of course, Eli Neuberger, uh, like usual. And um, that's a little bit about Crown Heights, just a taste of Crown Heights. And um, and this is Yehudi Gabra with Jewish history soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.